I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch, and my family and I, we took a sabbatical uh, for a chunk of the summer, and um, it was an incredible time, and um, just, just for our family, just to give you a, a quick picture, you know, <clears throat> in America, um, we have a go-go mentality, don't we? Um, we're really good at pushing the envelope, at going fast and hard, at being the pioneering to the we're going to do what other countries won't want to do. I mean, that's kind of like the spirit of America. We just want to keep driving. And the reality is, is that I and Ashley, um, we are also drivers. And when you're driving and you put your foot on the gas, sometimes you forget you're supposed to stop sometimes. Um, and for us, although we've had little moments of stopping and evaluating and reflecting on life over the last nine plus years since we started the church, we just needed a, a time to say, hold on, let's hit the brakes and just evaluate everything. Let's look at our lives. Let's look at how we're doing in parenting and our marriage. Let's look at how we're doing with our home and with finances. What are we doing with the church and different things that we're involved in? And what are the responsibilities that God's given us? What are the things we're called to? Are we still doing those things? Do we still have the right vision and the right heart behind those things? Because, you know, when you get to a point where you get a little tired, you can lose vision pretty easily, right? If you're in school, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be excited kicking off the fall, all pumped about class because you haven't gotten any C's or D's, you haven't gotten any A's, and you're, you, you have lots of vision for school, and then you get to November and Thanksgiving's coming, and you can smell that turkey a few weeks away, and you're thinking, oh man, this school thing, you know, you start losing a little bit. Or you're in a job, you guys have been pushing hard on projects, and, 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 you, and you think you hit the finish line, and then you come in Monday, and your team comes and says, hey guys, we got a whole new project. You're thinking, oh, I just wanted a break. But we feel like that, and I felt like that in many ways, just with life, that things weren't able to slow down. And so I just want to say thank you to our elder team, Chris and Andrew. They stepped in and said, hey, you guys are going to take a sabbatical, and we said, we're in, and so we did it uh, for, for the summer, and just want to say thank you to our staff. They did a great job. Um, they told me church was better when I was gone, and so that's always encouraging, um, uh, but no, they've done an amazing job, and I just want to say thank you to you as a church. Some of you uh, we know really well, some we don't, some you're new, but just want to say thank you for the grace you've extended to us um, to take a break, to, to, to get a chance to reflect, to, to be revisioned again. And just to ask the Father just to speak to us in fresh ways. I would say it's been an amazing time for me and my wife and my kids. And we're just so grateful. And we are excited to come back in full force. And God has reset us in different ways and given us just some fresh mindsets and just some fresh faith, really, um, for the church and what God's called us to. And so hopefully you will jump on board with us in that. But we're just so excited to, to be back with this community. And, um, and, and, and again, just, just grateful. Well, you know, when you're out of the normal routine, um, like I said, you get a chance to kind of stop and pause and smell the roses, so to speak. Um, but we weren't really smelling roses. We were just asking God big questions again. And as you stop and you take a chance to reflect, he begins to reveal things, right? When we stop, he actually does speak. And, and he's always speaking, but sometimes we just, we just can't hear him. And so as we got a chance to reflect, God was highlighting some different things in our lives. And even as I was just preparing for this message this week, um, God was speaking in a fresh way. And, you know, there, there's certain topics in the Bible that, that we've read or that we say those words over and over. And we're not really sure what they mean or we don't have a real depth of understanding of them. 
and, uh, or it could be something that, you know, we've heard that or heard a teaching once or read that once, but that seems great. I'm not really sure where to put that, and so I'm going to put it on my, on my believer's shelf of different cool ideas and thoughts and theological things, and, but, but it's not going to be an everyday thing, but, but it's certainly there. And I would say, as I was preparing this week, just felt like God highlight this topic, which is the glory of God. The glory of God. I, I, I've never met a Christian that says, hey, I'm anti-glory of God, right? But at the same time, many of us would say, I'm not really sure what that is, but I'm for it, right? And so the glory of God can be this kind of mysterious thing. And sometimes we're not okay with mystery, right? We are a fact-based society. We want to make sure the numbers add up. We want to make sure the story has all the facts. Everything society, it is all built upon, does everything equal this and that? And sometimes when you read the scriptures and you start getting into the nature of God and who God is, you all of a sudden realize, wait a second, he's still God and I'm still a human. And for me to try to fully understand everything there is to know about him would me be saying, oh, I am God. But you know, he is God and we are not. And we are on a journey for the rest of our lives of trying to continually discover him. And that's why Christianity is an adventure. If you're finding yourself following Jesus um, from a place of being bored, then I would challenge you again to go back and say, God, why am I bored? Why am I bored with life group? Why am I bored reading the Bible? This seems boring. I'd rather read something else. God, why am I bored when everyone else is worshiping and I'm just kind of lethargic and kind of there? God, what is going on? And I would, and I would challenge you to ask the question because I think God will speak and say, you have put me in some sort of box I don't belong in. And you have said, oh, I figured this out, and therefore there's nothing else to pursue. But our entire lives are meant to be a continual state of hunger, where we continually hunger for him. And he says, if you hunger after me, I will fill you. And then you're hungry again, and that's, and that's our source of life. He is our wellspring of life, the one that we are desire. So when you talk about the glory of God, we're going to do a little um, Old Testament, looking at, looking at the Old Testament, then we're going to step in the New Testament and see what it has to say, all right? So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip through a little bit, but I'll be jumping around, so we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. So let's start in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16 and 17. Just to set the stage, the Israelites had just been released from captivity in Egypt, where they were held as slaves. And now, as they've been released, they are now wandering around the desert without a home. And the Lord calls Moses, who is leading this, these Israelites, with some estimate about 3 million people, leading these people, this huge group of people in the desert. God calls them up to the mountain. In Exodus 24, 16, this is what he says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The glory of God here is described as a great cloud and a consuming fire. A bit intimidating, right? Wow, there's a consuming fire. I'm not sure I want to touch that because I will then be consumed. I mean, there is a glory of God. Wow, a bit of a fear factor of whoa. What is going on up to the mountain? And so Moses is called up there. So here you can see God's glory described here. Let's continue on a few chapters later in Exodus 33. Moses is up here on Mount Sinai because God summoned him. And this is what he says again. Moses then comes to the Lord and he says, please show me your glory. Please show me. At least he asked politely, right? Please show me 
your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The response to Moses is, you will see my goodness, you will hear my name, you will experience my grace and my mercy, but you can't see my face. You see, you can experience God's glory in those ways Moses did. But let's go on to 1 Kings in chapter 8. Fast forward in the journey in the history of Israel. This is 480 years after the Israelites have come out of Egypt from slavery. And King Solomon, the current king, has been asked to build a temple. So he's working on the temple for the Lord. And, he, and, and in the midst of the construction, he assembles the elders and the leaders of the different tribes of Israel. And they are there and they're preparing to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. Now, just a reminder, the Ark of the Covenant was this very ornate kind of large box that had these two long poles that only certain people in the priesthood could actually carry. And inside of this large box were the Ten Commandments written. These were the two tablets of stone, right, that Moses got, that God literally wrote on. And these give the Ten Commandments. That's what was housed inside of there. So here in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9, this is where we pick it up. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with, peop- with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Here we see that even the priest, the ones designated to carry the ark, this very special thing, the ones that were there to help minister and to administer the sacrifices of the Lord, guess what? The weight of God's glory literally came upon them where they couldn't stand, where their, where their knees were buckling. You see, God's glory, you can not just see it, it can be described, you can feel the weight of it. God's glory is weighty. One more passage of the Old Testament, you have the prophet Isaiah, and he would, he would be, as I described, one of the wild-eyed prophets. You know, I mean, Isaiah had all these crazy things happening. If you just read through Isaiah, you're not even really sure what's happening half the time. But this man was definitely a prophet. And you know, prophets, sometimes God speaks to them in strange ways. And, and, and Isaiah got a glimpse in chapter 6 here of God's glory, right? And so the Lord gives him a vision, and he sees the Lord sitting upon the throne up in heaven. He gives him this kind of open vision, if you can imagine that. He's looking up, and he sees the Lord in heaven sitting on this throne. This is what it says in Isaiah 6, verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does that tell you? God, the creator of the heavens and the universe and the earth and us, guess what? The entire earth is full of the glory of God, which tells you it's not only just a cloud or a consuming fire on a mountain. It's not only just a mist or, or, or smoke filling a temple, but that the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in the Old Testament, under the law, right, under the Ten Commandments and the statutes that God gave them through Moses, the glory of God could be seen, could be experienced, could be felt, right? You could feel the weight of it. 
And the glory of God would engage all of our senses. But in the New Testament, the glory of God takes on a bit of a new light. So let's look in John chapter 1, verse 14. Describing Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That word glory, now if you look it up in a biblical dictionary per se, you may get this definition, the manifest presence of God. Like the glory. When you talk about the glory, it is God showing up, like manifesting, revealing, showing himself, whoa, God is here in the room. It's the manifest presence of God. Another definition I found uh, talking about glory was this, an appearance commanding respect. Now you can see Moses up on Mount Sinai, thunder, consuming fire. People are like, whoa, God's up there. We don't want to go. Moses, you go, right? Moses, you go up there. I mean, that's the great thing about being a leader, right? You get to go to the consuming fire. (laughs) Thanks for sending me, guys. That's encouraging. And so you can see how the people of Israel, oftentimes they would see God's glory in the temple, filling it, and they'd be like, whoa, you, you, you priests go in there. Moses, see, there was, there was a law, there was something built into where not everyone was actually able to engage it all the time. There was only certain periods and certain places that it was happening in the Old Testament. But here it says, the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Which just so you know... That's a separating factor between Christianity and every other world religion that we would say that God, the God, the God that we worship, the Most High God, actually came down to earth. Other religions would say, that's beneath Him. And if you logically go there, you're like, yeah, that's like beneath God to come down to the place He created. He shouldn't have to hang out here. But He chose to come down. He chose to come down in flesh and live amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This kind of glory in the New Testament, ooh, it's attractive. Because it's grace and truth. Does anyone have a fond memory of like a, it could be a grandfather or an uncle or someone that you may know or have met an older man. You're like, man, when I just get to sit down and talk with them, I just feel good. Like, it just feels right. They just, they, they, they encourage me. They, they're there just to love on me. There's something right about them. They've experienced things, but they're landing in a place of integrity. And you just, just want to, man, I just want to talk to you for hours because there's something good about just spending time with someone that has lived life and isn't, you know, isn't, isn't that, that, that 21-year-old that is, that is uber zealous with very little experience, which, by the way, we've all been. If you're not 21 yet, you'll actually be there soon. But we're all zealous and excited and passionate. We don't really know what we're talking about, but we think we do, right? But, but it's the older man who's like, hey, I've been there. But not the older man that's jaded, right? But the kingdom-minded older man. Oh, who's just, the older he gets, the softer he gets. <laughs> the older he gets, the kinder he gets. The older he gets, the better of a storyteller and the better listener he is. And there's just something, warm. Oh, I just want to spend time. There's something attractive. You know, Jesus didn't have to have a multi-level marketing campaign to start his movement. His campaign went like this. Hey, John, drop that. Come on. Peter, get off the boat. Let's go. Andrew, come on. Sons of Thunder, over here. 
So he recruited his 12, his 12 rascals, and he formed this little motley crew, and they end up going places, and all of a sudden, Jesus is being followed by, you know, hundreds and then thousands of people, and then even when he's trying to rest, people just show up. Hey, man, I was, we were like on a break over here on the mountainside, and now there's 5,000 of you, right? Jesus was attractive. Why? Because he was full of grace and truth. People are attracted to that glory. In Matthew 5, 16, it says this. In the same way, this is Jesus speaking these words in his Sermon on the Mount he gives. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So here we have Jesus, full of grace and truth, the Son of God. He, when you look at him, you're like, oh, I see the glory. I see the glory. This is, it, it, is, it is God in the flesh. Here he is. And then here's Jesus in Matthew, and he's sharing this, this message about all sorts of things. And he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, where does the light come from? Well, in Genesis 1, the very opening chapter of the entire Bible, in verse 3, so literally a couple of verses in to the entire Bible, the very beginning, this is what it says. Let there be light. God speaking. Let there be light. And in verse 4 it says, and God saw that the light was good. Let there be light. God is the source of light. In the very beginning of creation, before he created Adam and Eve, by the way, and all the animals and all the cool stuff we see, in the very beginning, the earth, it was formless. And God speaks, let there be light. He's a source of light. This light comes in. This light from God is at the dawn of creation. We have been created by God, the light giver. He is the source. And so when Jesus says, let your light shine before others, what is he saying? He's not saying, let all your good ideas shine. Let all your skill sets that you think you obtained shine. What he's saying is, let the light of God that is in you, part of creating you, let it out. But you know, you can only give away what you've received. I can be honest with you and say that there are moments over the last year and a half of my life where I was giving more than what I was receiving, which means when that, when that gets off balance, you begin giving not of God, just giving of your own ideas and your own flesh. It's kind of like a bank account, the deposits and withdrawals. When you stop depositing enough light, enough goodness of God, when that, when that is not filling your tank day after day, week after week, when you then start running on empty, you then start scraping and scrapping to go about life a little differently than maybe how he designed you, and then life actually becomes a lot more stressful, a lot more anxious. Life, you don't really say, man, I'm walking in grace and truth. You're like, I'm just struggling, <laughs> But when you realize the only way we're going to let our light shine is just the more light we get of him. You see, the equation for all of us mathematicians is that if I stare at God long enough, if I receive from God, if I know more of him, then the equation, the outcome is that actually then I'm able to give more of him. I just have to have more of him in order to give more of him away. And, you know, for some of us, <clears throat> I used to get this description on a 
mission trip describing it to people about the gospel, I would, I would take a couple of Coke bottles and you know, I'd be sitting down with someone and say, hey, the kingdom of God is kind of like this. You got these two Coke bottles right here, and, and God's giving you an invitation through his son, Jesus. He's saying, hey, Jesus is right here at the doorway, and, and, if, and if you want to come into the kingdom, if you want to experience all that God has to you as a loving father, as a forgiving, if you want that relationship, guess what? There's only one entrance, and it's right here between these Coke bottles, and here's these imaginary doors, and Jesus is right there. You got to go through him. He's the door, he's, he's the doorkeeper right there. So if you want to receive Jesus, that's the only way to go. And I would tell them, but just so you know, it doesn't just stop there, although a lot of people stop there. Some people say, yes, Jesus, I'm here, I'm in, thank you. And they stop and they step through the threshold, I'm here in the kingdom. Man, feels good, doesn't it? But what they don't realize is actually the party is down the road. Hey, this looks, what are y'all doing down there? Well, you actually have to keep walking. Well, I'm in though, aren't I? Yes, yes, you made it into the foyer. (laughs) But the living room is where the family's hanging out. But you've chosen to stay in the foyer. You're like, wow, I'm glad I'm not on that side of the door anymore. So I would tell them, um, so just so you know, if if you decide to follow Jesus, following Jesus is not a play on words. (laughs) He says, come to the door and now follow me. Like, follow me on the path of life. Follow me here to this city, to this place. Follow me here in these relations. See me everywhere because I'm everywhere and you have to follow me. It's not I followed him to a place of salvation and now I stopped and just said, well, that was pretty good. Man, if there's any place in any of our hearts like that, that we're just saying, I'm a little tired. I'm a little, little bored. I, I, I've experienced the glory of God just in some different ways, but that was 20 years ago and that was enough for me. And I'd say, don't live that way. You're missing out. God's desire is that you experience more of him. That that increases. That increases. Now I want us to turn into 2 Corinthians. We'll kind of <clears throat> wrap up here in a few minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read for you some of these verses and just share a couple of thoughts. But I think it's going to help us pull everything together. Because what I want you to see is the Old Testament covenant is something that did have a beginning and an end. But the New Testament has a beginning and no end. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 through 11. I don't think I got this on the screen. Maybe I do. Snuck this in on you guys last minute. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 through 11. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, some of you guys are thinking that's a lot of glory. I'm not sure. I know that message. I know that passage is about glory. Let me help you out a little bit. The ministry of death is referring to the law, to the old covenant. Why? Because the commands and statutes were laid out for the Israelites. And just so you know, it wasn't bad. Like the Old Testament law, it wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. You see, God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. Remember that. Like God himself actually gave it to them. But because the people remained stubborn... As the Bible calls them stiff-necked, 
under the old covenant because of this. Not, see, they had the law. They, had, like, they were given what to do and how to do it. The problem was they were lacking the power to obey the law. You can give someone a list of rules, but if there's no power to actually obey it, you're going to have a hard time doing that. You see, so then the result then became condemnation. Within year after year, they have to go and offer sacrifices. Oh, we screwed up again. Here we go. It was this cycle where it didn't, no one was able actually to be set free from it. The new covenant, though, came through Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of the Spirit. And that has even more glory. Why? Because the new covenant brings righteousness or right standing with God. Like you're in a good place with God rather than condemnation. See, the ministry of death, it just led to death for people. But the ministry of the Spirit, it leads to life. The glory of the old covenant had been surpassed, right? It had been surpassed by the glory of the new. Why is that? Well, we'll get into that in just a minute here, but one thing is this, that the law had been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, the Old Testament, or the, or the Ten Commandments. I didn't come to abolish it, but I did come to fulfill it. And as we like to say, Jesus essentially took the old law and said, we're going to raise the stakes. <laughs> you said this, but we're gonna, it's not going to be this. You said that, but hey, now we're going to go here. It's actually increasing, and it's not decreasing anything. It's taking what would maybe be like the baseline and making it even greater. Let's continue on to verse 12 through 16. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We just sang a song about you tore the veil. You tore the veil. Jesus, being hung on the cross, dying on the cross, when he gave his last, last breath, says that the, that the veil in, in the temple at the time, in Jerusalem, you had this super huge, tall, long veil, tall in this building, this huge uh, tapestry that was there, and all of a sudden, it literally ripped in two, which no human could have done by themselves. It was so strong, the fabric, the thickness. Literally tore the veil, which was a sign to the people saying, the old covenant is now over. The new has come. The ultimate sacrifice. There's no need for more yearly sacrifices, everybody. Jesus became the ultimate one. Don't you see? And so here you have Moses, Paul is comparing and contrasting the old and the new. And he's saying, look, there was a fading glory that Moses had. Many scholars just say the reason why Moses had the veil over his face because he was hiding from the people the fact that this glory was actually fading. Like when Moses would go meet with God, his face would then start to glow. Kind of weird, huh? Be like, wow, it'd be like you got a big sunburn. You know, it's like your face is really shiny and glowing right now. And the people didn't know what to do with it. He wore a veil. And also to signify, guess what? The people of Israel, for the most part, they couldn't see through it, right? They, they, they were not able to, ex to experience the glory of God in that way. And so here's Moses, Paul referring to him, comparing law and grace. See, the Ten Commandments were written on stone. But then Jesus said, hey, it's going to be written on your hearts. Like, the law is going to be written on your hearts. 
And that if people would find Jesus, if they would find Jesus Christ and they would have new glory, they'd be able to experience him in a new way. You see, um, the veil explains why a lot of Israelites, a lot of Jews reject Jesus. Because they just they couldn't see. They're, they're blinded. When you have a veil, over, you know, we're not wearing veils a lot around here. But if you were to wear one, it's kind of hard to see. You can see, you can see a little bit. But you can't see fully, though. You see, the people could see something, but they couldn't see the whole thing. As I was just praying even again this morning, just felt like God was leading us to a place to say, where are the veils? Where are the veils in our lives? Like, I'm convinced if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, he has removed that veil. You're, you're, you're not seeing blur anymore. And listen, if you gave your life to Jesus yesterday or 20 years ago, that veil is lifted. Okay? But at the same time, there is a journey and a process of, yes, holistically, that veil is lifted, but there might be areas in our life where we're kind of still a little, little missing it, where we're nearsighted, where we can't really see fully. And that's where we need God to come and shine in and say, hey, what's going on in your life here? Give that over to him. And you have to remember, right, that um, not only when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted, but Jesus, he taught oftentimes in parables. And he would share the same parable with a group of people, and some people would get it, and the others wouldn't. How can that be? People, groups of people hearing the same story, the same truth, some, the truth is hidden from them, because the veil was still over. But when the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit comes on someone, that veil is lifted. The veil is lifted. You may have experienced this yourself, or with a friend. You're sharing with them, or stories are being shared, or you're going through truths with them, and all of a sudden, one day, it clicks. It's like, wow, you finally get it now? It's like the veil was lifted. The Holy Spirit got in there and the veil was lifted. I want to read this last passage here. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, guys, the veil's been lifted for us. What was under Moses and that glory was fading, but now there's a glory that's increasing. But you know, the enemy has a plan for us. Um, the enemy's plan is to keep us busy, to keep us distracted, to keep us focused on bad news and natural disasters, to keep us focused on everything that's not done in our home or on our to-do list at the office. Like, that's his, 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 his goal is actually to keep us so distracted, so inundated, so busy, and so full, so that we never have time to stop and say, God, be still and know that I'm God. That we don't have time to pull the car over, to pull the car over and to stop for a second. And say, God, show me yourself. Because here's what I know. God reveals himself. He's not sleeping. He's not too busy for you. We just get too busy for him. And you can't really give away what you haven't gotten. And if you don't stare at the light, if you don't look, gaze upon the one that's actually given you life and every skill set and every gifting and every opportunity you've ever known, 
If you can't look upon the one that is good and kind and merciful and full of grace and truth and look at him long enough so that you look at him so you actually have images in your mind when you go to sleep of him instead of images of the movie, instead of images of that horrible friend or that situation, we are so inundated with images and stories of everything that is wrong and off because we absorb it because that's what our culture feeds us. But if you're going to live in a kingdom culture, you have to feed yourself the light. Feed yourself the light. If you're having sleep problems, I would challenge you to open up your Bible for five minutes before you go to bed and say, I'm going to read a psalm tonight. I can't sleep. I have sleep problems. Okay, read a psalm. And I challenge you. I challenge you to do that. And I guarantee you, you start putting God in right before you go to sleep. Wow. Great night's sleep. That's, wow, that's such a coincidence, you know. I'm telling you right now, if we go to the source of life, if we look at him, if we gaze upon him, he will begin to work in you. But if you just try to work everything out by yourself, you're going to spiral. You're going to spiral. But God wants to pull us up. He wants to lift the veils again. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand as we close today. One last thing I want to share with us is... Um, if we live a life of assumption with God, that means we're not living a life of submission. I had realized there are areas in my life that I was assuming I knew what God wanted to do. You know, Jesus said in the scriptures, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Which tells me Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, amazing, he didn't even assume. And yet a lot of times where I've gotten off in my life is when I've assumed I'd know something about God without asking him. Can I tell you that God will speak to you? It may not be an audible voice. It may be. But it may be in your heart. It may be through a scripture. It may be through a song or a story or a circumstance. You're like, wow, God just spoke to me in that place. But are we willing to slow down enough? To slow down enough to look at him? To gaze upon him? To not assume I know what to do with work or this relationship or even my kids. It's like, are we reading books about how to help our kids sleep? Or are we asking the Father how to help our kids sleep? Yeah. Right? Are you reading books about how to get your finances in order? Or are you going to the scriptures to say, how do you get your finances in order? Are you listening to podcasts about relationship stuff? Or are you going to the Father about relationship stuff? Because I guarantee you his advice is always better than ours. He's full of grace and truth. And when you look at him, when you look at the giver of all things, and you stare upon him, and you gaze upon him, all of a sudden the other stuff just becomes so, so much smaller. Even before it was so big in front of us, but then it's like, wait, it just starts to dissipate. When we put our focus and our gaze on God and who he is, wow, the other stuff fades. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take time right now, because I got you here for at least a few more minutes just to gaze upon them. So we're not going to have prayer teams up here this morning. I'm just going to ask that you start by closing your eyes. The goal right now is to limit distractions, hindrances, any other thoughts coming in about anything else. Lunch, the rest of your day, your kids, your kids are fine. They're having a great time. But for the next few minutes, I just want you to focus your heart and mind, whatever you got to do, and to look at Father God. Isaiah said the heavens opened and he looked and he saw the Lord sitting on the throne and they were 
saying, holy, holy, holy. You may picture yourself walking into the gates of heaven, getting to see God the Father. It says that heaven doesn't need electricity because God's glory lights it up. I don't know what you got to do, but I want you to take a moment right here. And I want you to picture God, his glory. We want to gaze upon him. That's what we're going to do right now. So we're going to gaze upon the Father. Look into his glory and say yes. <laughs> yes and amen. You can sing to the song. You cannot sing. It doesn't matter. The goal right now is for you to look at him. And if there's a place in your life you're saying, I'm not surrendered, I'm not submitted, I've assumed or I've done things my own way, Lord, I want to surrender that to you because I, I want to surrender and submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords because all of my life is meant to be one huge story of how I gave glory to you, the way that I lived, the way that I thought, the way that I spoke. I want you to get it all. So, Father, we invite you right now. Holy Spirit, set us free. Spirit of freedom, just come. Set us free. If there's anything hindering us, anything hindering this moment right now to gaze upon you, Lord, I pray, would you come remove it, remove the distractions to help us to fix our eyes on you.